Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Jerry Rison. Jerry is a securities and corporate attorney and entrepreneur who's done a ton of work, among other things, in the opportunity zone space. So who better to come on and talk about tax efficient investing than Jerry? Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be on your podcast. I've uh, been listening to it. It's a fabulous resource uh, with all kinds of great topics. And so it pops up on my Apple podcast and I listen to them when they, whenever they come up. So I'm uh, pleased to be able to be on it. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Thank you. Um, so Jerry, I want to talk to you today about uh, tax efficient strategies when it comes to real estate development and investing. You've got a ton of developer clients and recently you've been working with them on strategies to get more of their gains into, uh, into capital gains. So talk us through why, what's the goal of, of accomplishing that? What are they trying to do and what strategies are you coming up with to help them accomplish that aim? Yeah, interestingly, um, my developer client uh, clientele has exploded because of opportunity zone investing, um, okay. among other things. I mean, um, because um, what, what, <laughs> what has happened over time is I've got parties who've purchased tracts of land that turned out to be an opportunity zone. They decided to subdivide it or they're looking <clears throat> to develop multifamily and industrial storage, hospitality in opportunity zone spaces. And that's just kind of, and that's just a subset of general developing. But mm -hmm. um, really, I've had so many companies say, hey, I've got this land, I'm gonna subdivide and sell it. Can I get opportunity zone benefit? And the problem is, of course, is that they already own the land. And owned it prior to, what is it, prior to 2018? They yeah. owned it, so, yeah. Yes, or they acquired it later and they didn't acquire it into the structure you have to have sure. to uh, qualifying opportunity zone uh, investment. So um, that kind of has led to other elements of efforts to mitigate taxation when you're a developer. Now, if you're developing a project, a large project, that's not going to be a big deal. You keep, you, you want to make sure to keep your general partner that gets the capital gains upside when you build an apartment complex, stabilize it and sell it. You want to keep that separate from your developer or your investment manager or your property manager. You, and but but it's a concept that flows throughout all this. And that is keep your your capital gains dynamics in a specific capital gains entity <clears throat> and keep your ordinary income dynamics in a specific one or more ordinary income uh, enterprises. So, um, so it's, for, as far as long-term development of commercial, it's not a big deal because your capital gains for your general P PP interest is generally gonna flow the correct way. But, um, I've also been dealing with a lot of uh, uh, folks buying large parts of land and selling off lots. And um, the query has been, can we, when you're right in the regular business of selling lots, you're generally going to be charged with ordinary income based upon your gains. It's almost like having a factory that produces widgets. You buy lots, you subdivide them, you put in the roads, you put in the utilities, and you sell them off. And that is generally going to be considered ordinary income. 
And, and why is that, Jerry? Why is that? Why, why does that fall into the ordinary income bucket? Well, that's a dealer uh, type property under Section 1237 of the code, and you have a, a bunch of uh, analyses to, to determine whether you have um, capital gains or ordinary income. Yep. Now, um, so been working with a number of those kinds of investors or developers, and one mechanism that has come up, and again, none of this should be considered specific tax advice to anybody or legal advice. Uh, it's just concepts that you need, you'll need to run by your own legal counsel and uh, tax advisor and CPA. And um, you know they're gonna have to be on board to how you treat these things. But um, so uh, what, we have, what, what some of my clients have done is they have created a bifurcated structure where they have an investment company uh, that's in the business of investing in real estate. Okay. Um, and holding that for a while. And if it can be held, you know, they might in the meantime be doing things like entitlements, getting it all platted, et cetera. And a year or more after having acquired the original property, they sell it to a development, their development company. And the development company pays the, the increased valuation. And having been held a year, or longer, that's long-term capital gains with about half the tax rate of ordinary income. So instead of all of it being ordinary income, they're asserting that a portion is capital gains, a portion is ordinary income. Now, th there's a couple of reasons why you want capital gains. One is if it can be long-term, obviously the rate is about half of ordinary income. If it's short-term, yeah. it's gonna be approximately the same rate of uh, taxation. However, if you can generate short-term capital gains, well, those can be used, uh, can be offset against some losses, lo uh, capital gain losses you may have. So that's one reason why, even if it's short-term, you, you, you know, in other words, you can't hold it for that a year or otherwise make it capital gains, you have, uh, or otherwise, um, you, you can use that against your, your, um, your losses. And yep. it can be hard to absorb capital losses, depending upon how you generate them and what they relate to. And that kind of thing. sometimes they just bleed out a little bit at a time. The other reason or another reason to generate capital gains is because whether they're short or long-term capital gains, they're potentially eligible for investment in a qualified opportunity fund under the Opportunity Zone statute, which then can allow you to defer payment of your tax in respect to those gains until December 31st, 2026. And Puts you in a vehicle where you can make uh, tax-free investments underneath that vehicle um, after a 10-year hold. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to opportunity zone investing, and we do an awful lot of it in all ways, representing kind of all sides of the of the equation. But uh, you know, even though you may be subject to the same taxation um, for short-term capital gains versus long-term capital gains, um, if you can use them in an opportunity zone vehicle, it's very helpful. Um, yeah, and and the, the reason is for anyone who isn't isn't familiar is that's one of the requirements of the Opportunity Zone program is the investment has to be uh, from a capital gain, and it can be it doesn't have to be real estate. It can be from sale of a stock, sale of a business. A lot of times, it is it is from real estate. So even if you're going to pay the same tax rate on that gain, say it's it's exactly identical. Um, it's 
preferable to have it be categorized as a capital gain, even if it's short term, because then you are, are then eligible to invest that into a qualified opportunity fund, as, as Jerry mentioned. So only certain, uh, it's only certain types of dollars are eligible to, to be invested in a QOF, and uh, it's got to be a capital gain. And it has to be done in the right structure. I mean, I've had, yeah. um, I've had people come to me and there's a, there's an area of a dry vacation area near Dallas where I live called the Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Beautiful, you know, small mountains and hills and lakes and streams and trout fishing and people have all kinds of luxury cabins that you can rent. I had one guy, uh, I actually have invested up there in some lots and my neighbor came to me and said, hey, uh, he, I, he said, yeah, I'm doing an opportunity zone investment. See, I bought this land in an opportunity zone, so I'm going to get tax-free upside. And I said, uh, well, did you set up a qualified opportunity fund to invest in? I just bought it. I'm in an opportunity zone. <laughs> so it's not, you're right. You need those capital gains. You can't just invest any dollars. So he not only didn't invest capital gains, he didn't set up the structure to invest correctly. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that, no. He's not going to see that tax-free upside, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so there are some nuances. You know, another, but back to what we were originally talking about, um, another thing I've seen people doing with lots, really interesting, a client of mine. So if you invest a minimal amount into the lots, so doing things like marketing, subdividing, um, flatting, getting entitlements, whatever the case may be, that's not going to turn it into ordinary income. Um, but if you can keep your improvements value a minimal amount, neighborhood of 10 or so percent, then that can be treated as an as investment income. That's another uh, way one of my clients has been um, uh, avoiding it. And then the, that same client is following an, another interesting path. And that is that they're platting and selling lots before they put in the infrastructure and having the buyers escrow a proportional amount of the cost of the infrastructure. So since they haven't developed the lots yet and um, the money is in escrow, the clients are comfortable, you know, instead of having 100% ordinary income, they're going to have 100% capital gains and then they're just uh, putting in the infrastructure as an agent for all of the buyers of lots. So I thought that was a really interesting approach. But I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I, I see this more and more, the desire to find a way to um, to, um, to to generate some capital gains from lot type development. By the way, I want to go back a little bit. The structure where you have an investment company and a development company, yeah. There is one problem with that vis-a-vis -vis opportunity zone investing. Since that's a sale to a related party, related party capital gains are not eligible to invest in opportunity zone. I mean, you can invest them, but you won't get the benefit of the opportunity zone debt, uh, the tax incentive. So um, just remember that, but you still have capital gains potentially that you can offset with other, and might be taxed at a lower rate if you, if you hold a loan. So, those so with, are the with things that I've been seeing with respect, specifically respect to lot. Uh, yeah, so that, that's a good point there, Jerry, about the the related party issue. So just to make sure I, I understand this, when you set up, um, you, you, it, when you sell it to a development company, that's a, a related party, presumably there's some common ownership. 
So that's going to disqualify that capital gain from being invested or from receiving the benefits associated with an opportunity zone investment. You you still get the benefit of a, if, if it's been held for a year and a day of um, essentially turning that into a long-term capital gain. Is that right? That's 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 correct. You potentially you you can you can um, you can make that uh, argument with the IRS, and and as long as you can kind of kind of show that an investment company has independent activities as an investment company, you probably have a pretty strong argument. Um, okay. But again, those if it's to a related party developer, you know the 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 cash that is eligible as equity in a qualified opportunity fund to get those benefits must be capital gains generated from an, a, a sale to an unrelated party. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, this this seems like a, a fairly fairly straightforward strategy, setting up the investment company, the development company, um, having them kind of, I, I think the word you used was bifurcating it um, and having, having the investment company handle uh, the first piece of it, sell it to the development company and the idea then that instead of, of ordinary tax being taxed at ordinary income rates are then taxed at a long-term capital gain rate potentially is that right that's right yeah and again the other the other concepts being minimal investment into the lot um that is minimal you know physical investment in the lot um i've got mm -hmm. one client who's buying who's bought a large tract of land i think about 120 acres and there's and he's going to do large lots and there's a road running through it already so He's not going to be putting. I mean, he's going to go ahead and put in um, uh, fiber, I believe. Um, but um, he's not. That's it. That's less than ten percent of the value of the property. So he's going to. He feels like, and his his accountant is on board to continue to consider all those lot sales to be capital gains. And then, of course, the concept of selling the lots before you actually undertake the development, escrowing the pro rata funds from the buyers to to do the to do the development work put in there. yeah some kind of three interesting strategies there to circle back to that second one with the, the minimal investment what's it, the, the there's an importance i assume of that 10 percent number um or is that is that an interpretation that so that's you can kind of keep uh, it under, under the uh, yeah under section 1237 there's some concepts as to how the irs will look at look at these things mm -hmm. and that is kind of one of the one of the elements is is it basically de minimis amount of development that has been undertaken so if you've done a, a, a de minimis amount of investment, in this case, we're kind of hovering around that 10% number, um, then there's a, a potential way to, to categorize this as uh, instead of being ordinary income um, under 1237 capital gains. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And again, in that case, you're generating third party cap, sale, capital gains from sales to the third party. So your, your opportunity zone opportunity kicks in again. Yeah. Okay. Great point. And then um, let's dive into that, that third example a little bit. I want to understand that um, a, a little bit better, um, where you're you're that's growing part of the um, part of the development cost. Talk through how that would work. So in the third party example, you're really selling off undeveloped lots, which is pretty clearly capital gains, right? All you've done is make sure that mm -hmm. the, the, there's entitlements to build whatever people expect to build on their vacation homes or whatever. And you're going down to the county and, and getting it all platted and getting whatever approvals you need. And then you're saying to the buyers, hey, uh, you can buy these lots. And but as a condition of buying lots, you have to ask, you know, you estimate, you get you, you get your cost as to what you're gonna have it's gonna take to put in the infrastructure, such as you're putting in, whether it's 
some roads, whether it's uh, sewage, whether it's water, whether it's fiber, electrical, and you say, okay, there's going to be a hundred lots, so you're going to pay uh, uh, ten. Uh, you know, if you're buying one lot, you're going to pay um, what is that? Ten one is one percent. One percent of the of the um, cost of that. We're going to put that into escrow, so you know it's going to be used. And then when we get a sufficient amount, we're going to start the process. And and you could promise that the extent you haven't sold, you know, that the developer will be responsible for the for the any overages or um, or if you know some lots remain that haven't been sold. So, but again, you're just selling investment real estate, and yep. you're acting as an agent for the buyers to do what needs to be done to make their lots usable for their vacation homes or whatever the case may be. Yeah. This isn't gonna work obviously in urban tract home building, right? People want to just come in, buy the house. Um, it's gonna work where, where, and this is where I'm seeing it, in kind of vacation areas, um, country areas, where often where buyers aren't feeling pressured to move too quickly to put their home on there, build their home. So um, that's where I'm seeing it. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, that's great, Jerry. There's, there's kind of three pretty creative ideas, kind of three different strategies with the same goal in mind of, uh, of essentially shifting that income from, from ordinary, uh, ordinary income rates to, to capital gains. You get a couple benefits, potentially lower tax rates as well as it kind of opens up that qualified opportunity fund door if it's uh, an unrelated unrelated transaction. So a couple of, a couple of benefits of, of doing that. Um, I, I want to shift gears here a, a little bit, keeping on the same opportunity zone theme and kind of tying in uh, 1031s. You had kind of an interesting discovery recently about um, when you're taking advantage of, of, sector, of a 1031 exchange or when you're making a qualified opportunity fund investment, there's uh, the clock is ticking. You, you've got 180 days um, in, in both of those cases to kind of um, to, to to finalize the investment. You, did, you made an interesting discovery about there's an assumption that those would be running um, concurrently from the the time of a capital gain is is realized, but you're saying that assumption is wrong. So walk us through what you've kind of realized in in terms of the the timeline here. Right. So remember, I'm a securities and corporate attorney, meaning I'm a transactional attorney. I'm a business attorney. I'm a capital formation attorney and doing all the things that are necessary both contractually and regulatorily to do that. And I've just gotten deep into the opportunities on space and I've got some good familiarity, but I work with tax specialists all the time. And interestingly, without much examination through the first five years or so as it has been now in the opportunities on space, the people have talked about Opportunity zone investing being a way to save or, or get, you know, have some salvaging of a failed uh, 1031 deal. Yeah. But everybody up until earlier this year that I've spoken to about it has kind of operated under the conception that the 100-day investment period under 1031 and the 180-day investment period under the Opportunity Zone statute is going to be running concurrently so that if you know, you're going to know well before the 180th day whether you're failed in your 1031 deal. But if the money, but the way the way 1031 investing works is you never receive the proceeds from your first sale. It goes directly 
to a qualified intermediary kind of acts as an escrow agent and they hold that money for the whole 180 day um if they if there's a it's right clear, it's, back, it's busted yeah Even they if it's can clear, give it back it's not going to work if you if they can give it back to you before the 180 days that might actually vitiate your 1031 situation. So they have, even though everybody knows it's going to fail, they won't give it back to you until the 108th day. Now, whether you can get everything in place on that 108th day to immediately invest in an opportunity zone deal, that's problematic. And maybe you've missed that. But we had a client came in who missed that. And we started scratching our head and said, why, why couldn't the client Consider that the day he got the money back from the qualified intermediary is the tax day. So we looked it up, or had the tax guys look it up, and sure enough, you can treat a failed 1031 deal under the installment sale concept such that if you file the right forms with your tax returns, you can you can choose to either have your tax event the day you sold the original property or the day that you get your cash back from the qualified intermediary. Now, um, there's a couple of forms. One is section 6250, or form 6252, and there's one other, I just can't remember right now, but, um, but there's actually two benefits of that. One benefit is that if you are to sell a first lake property after June in any year, you essentially can move that tax event into the next year, regardless of whether you mm -hmm. want to do the investment, right? So that could be a benefit to you. Um, second is that now you have a new 180-day period to look to do opportunity zone investing. So, and it's funny that as soon as we uh, figured this out, um, and uh, you know, all of our CPAs and tax people we work with gave him the info that said, oh yeah, we we never think about it. <laughs> and I've tried to talk to QIs about it. Nobody really seems to realize that they've got this benefit out there. Um and uh and so yes and 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 as soon as we kind of discovered it, we immediately got a few other clients, not because they'd heard about this from the first client, just serendipitously, coincidentally, got a bunch more who had the same issue. And meanwhile, yeah. in the first five years of my and I've been working in the opportunity zone area since it first passed because it blew my mind. What an incredible! Yeah, so 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 I've heard of this, this. I find this fascinating because I've I've heard of folks using uh, a qualified opportunity fund to to salvage or to save a, a busted ten thirty one, and it's always kind of been this chaotic day number one hundred and eighty in, in kind of the stories that that I've heard or people doing this because so just to use a hypothetical example here, let's say you sell a property, you've got a million dollar capital gain. So I don't want to pay taxes on this, so I'm going to do a 1031 exchange, a like-kind exchange. I'm going to uh, identify a, a property that I'm essentially going to roll uh, these, these proceeds into, and it's got to meet a, meet a bunch of requirements. I won't go through those now. Um, but you know, 1031s fail uh, all the time. Um, the deal falls through for, for one reason or another. And then it used to be, the thinking used to be, like Jerry said, uh, your money's tied up until day 180 when the qualified intermediary gives it back to you. And then that day 180 is also the deadline to, to make your investment into a qualified opportunity fund. Um, so like Jerry said, you could try to do, try to get everything done on the same day. I think there's a lot of logistics associated and a lot of reasons why that that won't work. Um, it could, but it's a, it'd be a chaotic day to say the least. 
um, or come up with some sort of alternative source of, of liquidity um, to make it work, whether that's a loan or, or your own liquidity. Um, but what, what Jerry's kind of discovered here, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that um, you can actually make some elections to give yourself a whole other 180 days and, and start the clock essentially, not on day zero, but on day uh, on day 180, um, and give yourself time to uh, find that right OZ investment or um, to make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. That's correct. And for many, if not most of these clients, we set up something called a self-directed opportunity zone investment vehicle yep. where they are basically the owner of their own QOF. Um, I, it's amazing this huge percentage of professionals who ought to know about opportunity zone investing that don't or have some misconceptions. Just talking to someone the other day about it who does a lot of M&A deals, and he says he doesn't tell his clients because his clients don't want to have their money tied up in something after they sell. Well, you you set up a self-directed opportunity zone investment vehicle that you control. You can take that money out, borrow, you know, lend it to yourself, use it for what you whatever you want, and you have more than three years before you have to figure out what to do with it. And meanwhile, you've got the deferral of the capital gains. You can look for opportunities on investment. If you don't find anything, you can just collapse it and then pay your tax two, three mm -hmm. years down the road. So um, there's almost no downside to setting up your own captive or self-directed opportunities on investment vehicle. And there's tons of upside. And the creativity that you can end up getting in a self-directed opportunity zone vehicle is amazing. I mean, once you've held that thing for 10 years, um, you can invest in other hard assets, let's say exotic cars. And it's not the holding period of the asset that matters. It's the holding period that you made your investment in the in the top level in the QOF. You could buy exotic cars, depreciate, you know, rent them out, depreciate them after two years, sell them for as much or more than you got them before because these are like vintage wine, right? You only come and and just kind of keep doing that over and over, selling those cars off, depreciate it down, pay no tax and sell it, keep doing it over and over. It's amazing. You know, everybody really ought to have their own self-directed opportunity zone investment vehicle. It's kind of like a Roth IRA on steroids, really. Yeah, it is. It's it's a, it's a super Roth. You know, Jerry, I've heard, I've talked about this with, with Jimmy Atkinson, who who we both know well, um, and, and you know Jimmy's made the point. We'll get the question. You know, how how soon can I get my money out of a QOF? Because as you said, it's got to be patient capital. There's a ten year holding period. Jimmy's point is, you shouldn't be asking. You know, how soon can I get my money out? You should be asking, how long can I keep my money in this thing? And how big um, can I grow this? Yeah, this this portfolio of unlimited tax free upside assets and businesses. Yeah, and I, I love I love your description too. I think that's that's very apt of of a Roth on steroids or a, a super Roth IRA. I've heard some people call it um, because the you know once you get the money in there and properly seasoned, um, it's a it's a pretty incredible um, tax elimination. And, and by the way, even, even though you, we talked before, I mean having a self directed options on investigo. Even though we talked before about how the dollars that get the benefits are your capital gains equity dollars. That doesn't mean you can't fund it with more dollars and build that portfolio. And the way you would fund it with more dollars is you'd make it a loan mm. so that mm. you're not proportionally reducing your tax-free upside. You're just arithmetically reducing it because you got you get a loan payback. But you can, you can and, and again, if in the short term, you need the cash and you can, this is your entity. You can loan the cash back to yourself. Pay it back. You got three to four years before you really have to do anything. Meanwhile, three to four years have run off your 10 year clock. Hmm. Yeah, good point. 
Um, good point. And, and just in case anyone's one, un, unclear listening to this, uh, we, we talk about a, a self-directed opportunity zone fund here. There's kind of a couple options if you've got a capital gain. If you don't want to do any of the work, you can. There's there's funds out there who are raising capital from from folks who have experienced a capital gain event. You could become a limited partner uh, in, in their fund. Um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to some of the other the, the existing funds out there. Um, if you want to go, I don't want to say the the lazy route, but you know, say you're, you're not comfortable with with managing it or being an active participant. Um, there's plenty of folks out there who have some great projects. They'll they'll raise your uh, they'll take your money. They'll do the uh, the heavy lifting. You'll be a limited partner. Um, and then the other route to kind of simplify things here is what what Jerry's referred to as the the self directed route, uh, where where you do the work of setting up the qualified opportunity fund, or you, you work with someone like Jerry who can do it for you, um, and you kind of take a, a more active role in it. So I'm simplifying a bit, Jerry, but those are kind of the the two options if you've had a capital gain and and you want to take advantage of. Uh, of the Opportunity Zone program. Is, is, did I do that justice? That's correct. But the other thing is that on the self-directed route, that does not preclude investing in the, I mean, investing in yeah. the uh, more institutional funds, because to tell you the truth, they'd be happy to merge your self-directed QOF into theirs and give you credit for your dollars. Right? Yep. And, and in yeah. fact, we only have until 2027 to make novel capital investments in the qualified opportunity funds we have, it, it, for any capital gains generated through 2026 and then of course you have the period of time into 2027 to invest them you can invest in qof qualified opportunity funds yours or somebody else's um what's going to happen after that consolidation in the industry if it's not happening already it is happening a little bit already where you're going to have mergers of qof and um so you haven't precluded participating in a institutional fund by setting up your own self-directed investment fund. Because the rules expressly allow for mergers of QOFs to QOFs and QOs to Bs to QOs to Bs. And if there's only dollars in there, well, the institutional fund would be happy to give you credit for the dollars. Yeah, yeah, uh, great point. There's, I think the, the kind of bottom line takeaway here is there, there's actually, you know, everyone gets, not everyone, some people get scared off by the 10-year the holding requirement for opportunity zones. Bottom line, upshot here, there's a lot more flexibility uh, in these vehicles than, than maybe you would initially think um, once you start diving in here. I think Jerry's done a great job of, of unpacking uh, kind of where some of that additional flexibility is. So, um, Jerry, before I let you go here, last question, where can folks go if they want to learn more about what you do, if they're uh, intrigued by something you've said and, and they want to reach out to you? Well, um, they can email me. Um, I've got a complex email, of, of course. It's G-R-E-I-H-S-E-N. That's my first initial and last name, G. Rison, at swordshieldlaw.com. All right, and we'll put that in the show notes to make it easy for everyone. And then, and then of course, I, I actually, they can call me as well. My phone number is 214-908-2009. Okay, brave man giving out his phone number, but... Uh... I mean, I, I, I actually don't have a problem not answering the phone if it's a number yeah. I like, and if they leave a message, uh, that's fine. If they don't, if they don't, fine. I, yeah. I, <laughs> right. No, I, I love it, Jerry. You're you're one of the, the brightest guys in this industry, and on top of that, you uh, lead with a giving hand, and are kind of always happy to to help people out, and at least do that initial sounding board. So, uh, very admirable and much appreciated. 
also appreciated you coming on here and, and sharing some of your knowledge here. This has been a great conversation. So Jerry, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.